from Johannesburg to Jerusalem, the world is always changing, growing and innovating. Join Benji Shulman for the next hour as he brings you the trendsetters, the thought leaders and those creating news before it happens. Only on the New Blue Review, your favorite Jewish culture and current affairs show. Every Monday at 9 a.m. right here on 101.9 High FM. You're listening to 101.9 High FM. I'm Benji Shulman. This is the New Blue Review. Welcome to the program on this Monday morning. Hope that you had a fantastic weekend and are looking forward to the week ahead. And as usual, we have a fantastic lineup for you today. And, and to begin with, I'm going to be talking to Bryce Barros, who is a term member on the Council for Foreign Relations. So, uh, and why, you might ask, would we be talking to a term member of the Council for Foreign Relations? Well, in the New York Times this week, there was uh, an article where they talked about Chinese foreign influence in, uh, in America and around the world and how the Chinese government is changing the narrative or trying to change the narrative on their country using NGOs in, uh, in the States, mostly, uh, they're included in this code pink, which if you are a follower of uh, the BDS, you will know them quite well. Uh, but also South Africa came up, uh, as well, uh, in the form of the new frame, which was a, uh, quite well done, uh, sort of left leaning website that used to cover events in South Africa until there was a big bust up um, between the editorial staff and the uh, reporters about their China coverage. So it is very, very interesting to understand how China is interacting in the world, and particularly, I suppose, with America. Uh, and no one better to do it than uh, Bryce, who has a lot of background on this topic, including uh, how this type of relationship operates on the African continent. So I'm very excited to welcome him sh- to the show. Bryce, thank you so much for joining us on Haifeb. Thank you so much, Benji. I'm very happy to be here and Looking forward to discussing some of China's different foreign interference and information operations across not only the United States, but as well as the African subcontinent. So obviously the China-America relationship has always been very, very important. Uh, if you go back even to the 70s and Henry Kissinger and all these sorts of things. But I think in the modern version of it, it became important under the Obama administration, the so-called pivot to Asia. And I think perhaps the the, the wider public very uh, much aware of it under the Trump administration. Where are we at the moment when it comes to America-China relations? So I think right now there's a couple different ways to look at uh, U.S.-China relations, especially under the current administration, so the Biden-Harris administration. As of this week, President Biden uh, issued an executive order, which was going to screen um, and orders you know, different parts of the U.S. government to screen outbound investment flows or outbound capital flows from the United States into China, um, into areas of strategic importance, right? So that would include quantum computing, dual-use technologies, anything that can be used within the concept of um, so-called Chinese civil-military fusion. I know that that's not necessarily the topic that we're here to talk about today, but I think it's important to highlight, especially given that this is sort of where we are right now. So there's been a couple different editorials here in the United States and other parts of the West that talked about how the Biden administration has done a really interesting job of sort of taking the mantle 
and some of the impetus that the former Trump administration had towards China and tried to solidify and codify them in much more structured ways. And I think that this recent executive order, including a whole host of other actions taken by the by this administration to include the restriction of export trade controls, you know, for uh, semiconductor chips to China and, and a whole host of other actions, really speaks to how China really is the top priority of this administration and these sort of substantive things are being taken to, one could say, stymie aspects of China's military industrial complex, as well as ensure that sensitive technologies that are developed in the United States, as well as in allies like places like the Netherlands, Japan, South Korea, et cetera, all, all of which, and Taiwan as well, or partners like Taiwan, all of which have been used to ensure that those technologies stay within those eco our ecosystems and don't end up bleeding over into China. So I would say that's the state of play right now, is that recent executive order. And overall, the relationship is still very cold and very tense. It's very, very interesting that you say that, uh, you know, the, the Biden administration has been effectively codifying things that the Trump administration and Obama administration was was working on. We, we, we think about America as a very partisan country just right at the moment in terms of the domestic policy. But it kind of shows how uh, bipartisan, actually, and how everyone kind of at least is on some kind of the same page when it, when it comes to the fact that uh, there has to be some sort of difference in approach uh, on, on the China question. You also mentioned Taiwan. The big risk, the big thing that everyone has kind of always been worried about is that China may sort of invade Taiwan, considered by the Chinese government not to be a country. They refer to it as the rebel province, all sorts of things. How much is it of a concern, do you think, to the American administration at the moment that a reinvasion of Taiwan might be on the cards? So, I would, I mean, personally speaking, and I might can speak on my behalf, not for the U.S. government or any other previous employers I've had um, around that. Uh, I would still say that the threat of invasion is relatively low. Um, now, there's been a few different U.S. government officials, mostly U.S. military flag officers, who have made comments, and, and not just them, other officials as well, who have made comments that, um, you know, Taiwan is going to face a Chinese invasion in a certain time period or whatever. Um, I don't think that that's the case, not because I'm, you know, very optimistic or whatnot about Taiwan's own security or what have you. I think that if that Xi Jinping's made it very clear that he wants to have the capability to invade Taiwan in a time period. So 2027 is one is the time period mentioned. But I think that's very different from the intention of doing so. And there's so many risks that come with an invasion of Taiwan for China. And in many ways, I would argue that the uh, failed invasion or, you know, the fact that Putin wasn't able to conquer um, Ukraine so quickly has also given a, a bit of pause to officials within Beijing on their stance towards Taiwan. Now, that doesn't mean that they aren't willing to do defense exercises around Taiwan. Um, there's been numerous, you know, intercepted People's Liberation Army Air Force sorties flying within Taiwan's air identification zone over the last several years, especially since the war in Ukraine has kicked off. This sort of harassed Taiwan to wear down its air missile defenses and other defense systems to wear down pilots, you know, F-16s and other fighter jets that scramble to go escort or monitor some of these Chinese fighter jets. 
So I think that's their tactic. And there's been discussion, I think, in the last day because Taiwan's vice president, like William Lai, like Qingda, is in the United States right now. And there might be a potential for another military exercise to sort of show China's displeasure uh, with another incident of, you know, a Taiwanese government official uh, coming to the United States or interacting potentially with senior officials from the U.S. government uh, right now. Um, so I would say that the, the threat of invasion is low, uh, the threat of harassment and sort of gray zone tactics. So any sort of thing that could be viewed under the threshold of war to include information operations like the New York Times article that you mentioned previously um, will probably still continue to be ramped up. And I think if you were to talk to a Taiwanese defense official, um, something that they constantly highlight uh, is that they've always had a sense of, you know, conflict is ongoing, not in the traditional sense of a military force on force kinetic action, but ever since, uh, you know, the Republic of China government relocated from the Chinese mainland to the island of Taiwan following the Chinese Civil War in 1949, uh, there's always been a, a struggle to influence, you know, uh, politics, influence discourse and whatnot between Taiwan and China itself. So I think that will continue to intensify, like the gray zone tactics, the military exercises and stuff. I don't think that there will be an invasion anytime soon. And I think for Xi Jinping to feel like he needs to invade Taiwan in a pinch, I think that that would mean that he would be in a very dire situation at home. And right now, he doesn't seem to be in that position at the moment. Uh, things could obviously always change, which is the analytical answer that most Layman people don't want to hear from analysts like me. But I think it's important to sort of keep that in the back of one's mind. That for right now, there's a certain stasis at the moment. Uh, but you never know when someone can change in their thoughts, especially, you know, here in Washington, D.C., within many policy circles. There were, in, in the lead up to the invasion, full-scale invasion of Ukraine um, last year, there were many individuals and many other sort of, you know, members of the policy ecosystem who were still somewhat in denial that an invasion could happen. And we're very surprised that an invasion could actually did happen uh, in the gamble that that meant uh, not only for the stability of uh, Putin's regime back in Russia, which we've seen recently is we still don't really have a full understanding of how stable it is given the most recent mutiny, mutiny, uh, rebellion, whatever you want to call happened with Wagner. Um, And, you know, I think if Xi Jinping is looking at that, he could also have questions at home about, okay, I decide to launch a, few, a full-scale invasion of Taiwan. What does that mean for the People's Liberation Army units or People's Armed Police units at home uh, and whether or not they might want to remain loyal to me? Um, and there were some incidents, you know, during the Tiananmen Square massacre where different units of the Chinese um, military and People's Armed Police had sort of iffy loyalty issues back to the central government in Beijing. So I, I think Xi Jinping probably won't do anything, but you never really know. And it's always important to keep an eye out uh, for the moment. You're listening to 101.9 High FM. I'm Benji Shulman, and we've been talking today to Bryce Barros, who is a term member of the Council for Foreign Relations, talking about China relations with uh, South Africa, with America, with the world. And uh, we're going to be continuing this discussion going forward. I am Benji Shulman, and this is 101.9 High FM. 
From Johannesburg to Jerusalem, the world is always changing, growing and innovating. Join Benji Shulman for the next hour as he brings you the trendsetters, the thought leaders and those creating news before it happens. Only on the New Blue Review, your favorite Jewish culture and current affairs show. Every Monday at 9 a.m. right here on 101.9 High FM. Now, you mentioned the information war, uh, which is what I had started the, the interview referencing. There's almost comical stuff that happens. Uh, I read an article in the 70s, I think, about a giant microphone, megaphone that was installed in Taiwan to blast Taiwanese popular songs into the Chinese mainland across the straits, which I thought was kind of funny and quirky. But what we're looking at here in the New York Times article is quite a sophisticated and well-funded campaign to influence, in this particular case, public opinion on the left in America. Uh, certainly the new frame here in South Africa was considered to be the kind of gold standard, long-form journalistic centerpiece if you wanted to read stuff like that in, in, in South Africa. So it, it, it is quite sophisticated, and it's working in a, in a shallower media environment in, a, in an African and South African context than it would be in a more developed market. So... Maybe you could take us through what does it look like when when China is is trying to um, change the information environment in a in an African country and and what is their goal here as opposed to in the United States? So I think there's a couple of different ways to look at it, and for that I would refer back to a report that I worked on uh, in my previous position at the German Marshall Fund um, about Chinese uh, information operations across the global South. Uh, in which, you know, we analyzed a couple of different African countries, one of which um, is Uganda, and the other one, I believe, is Nigeria. And the way that we sort of looked at this was less focused on the tactics, techniques, and procedures trying to disseminate misinformation, or rather disseminate disinformation, and then sue, you know, sow the seeds of misinformation Domestically, it was more focused on what does it look like when China can dominate a country's information environment, you know, in any sort of way possible, uh, from infrastructure to applications to devices, governance, and then the actual information operations themselves. I think in the case of South Africa, and based off what's been reported on, on New Frame by the New York Times, Obviously, it seems that China wants to influence the discourse that's happening across the left within South Africa. I should also note that historically, and I would say that this is a pretty significant step in this evolution, China has not been very good at influencing political discourse, specifically in the West. Um, there's a level, historically speaking, there's been a level of lack of awareness for some of the cleavages, social cleavages within Western democracies, um, especially around culture war issues. Uh, for the Russians, that has not been a problem, um, historically speaking. And given that the United States and Russia have been competitors with each other um, for many decades in a formal way, there's a lot of individuals within the United States, within Beijing, sorry, within Washington, D.C., and within Moscow who understand how to push each country, the other country's buttons. Um, and you can see that with what happened with um, 2016 in the United States. I'm involving uh, Prigozhin, the leader of Wagner, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I think with South Africa, you know, the 
sort of narratives would be the typical ones that you've seen across other parts of the global south that, you know, China's a benevolent partner. China can actually like do business with other African countries in a way that's much more sort of transparent, or at least is more transactional. Um, they're not going to push values like democracy. Uh, the things that are really going to stick out to them, um, you know, as has come out in the reporting is stuff related to, uh, Hong Kong, Taiwan, and the Xinjiang region where Uyghurs, a Turkic Muslim minority group, are currently being held in concentration camps and many governments have recognized as a, as a genocide on the closest to the scale of the Holocaust, uh, not in terms of people being executed, but in terms of people being interred. So I think that that's the sort of discourse that they're seeking to influence and also to promote, you know, what are some of the material benefits that South Africa can get from China in terms of investments, in terms of just closer relations. I would also argue that there might be an element promoting BRICS, especially with the summit in South Africa this year. In addition to there's been close, you could tell that there's been closer coordination over the last several years, especially since um, Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine really kicked off last year, that Russian state propagandists and Chinese state propagandists are starting to feed off of each other and amplify similar messages. And South Africa is a place where I think, I don't mean to tell you, some of those sort of overlapping messages of, you know, the West can't be trusted, trust us, we are the true leaders of the global South, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, should be received a little bit better than other parts of the world. Now, you mentioned the Uyghurs and some of the the human rights issues in terms of minorities in China, but I think that perhaps people in the West are still not entirely aware about how controlled not only the information environment, but just the general political environment is in, in China. Would you care to, to, to talk about some of that and, and what we know about how internal controls work in China with regards to such a large population? Yeah, so I think there's a, I mean, there's a lot to go into with this question. Um, but there's one sort of thing that reminds me of, which is, you know, in the last few years, I remember talking to a friend in the mid 2010s, um, who was, uh, stationed as a foreign, American foreign service officer at a post in China, talking about how civil society has essentially been removed. So there's no one in civil society, if you're a U.S. government official that you can reach out to that isn't touched by the party and that they really try to ensure that there's no way that U.S. government officials can talk to anyone. Um, and, you know, different groups historically that have been much more open to wanting to talk to the U.S. government or talking to foreign governments like um, academics, you know, in a sort of like uh, intermediary sort of way, are less willing to do so. So I think there's a couple different ways that that's controlled and I'm, you know, there's a very, the question you asked is very wide, but I'm going to try and narrow it down, uh, to the specialization that I bring. Um, so for example, that could include, you know, if you have like a, a company in China, you have to have a certain amount of, uh, individuals who belong to the party, you know, involved in the company, which also could influence the way that a company sort of goes. That includes in foreign investment companies in China as well as um, joint ventures, other sort of partnerships. There's also a desire to want to control information, so that means blocking websites like YouTube, Facebook, even applications which are very popular across Africa like WhatsApp because of the concerns that those can't be controlled by the party itself. In addition to a lot of monitoring, you know, some of the different things that are being used to monitor 
you know, Chinese nationals, mostly in the name of public safety, you know, quote unquote, includes a lot of cameras everywhere you go across China, um, sophisticated monitoring of like web traffic. So not only blocking the websites I mentioned, um, but, you know, if you were to like search a term that isn't allowed in China, um, it's plausible that that could tip, you know, someone could come across that. If you're a Chinese national, you get visited by a member of the public security bureau, um, which is their sort of, um, nationalized police, um, in China. Uh, so there's a bunch of different ways that that could be manifested. Um, and one of the bigger dangers I highlighted in the previous report that I did, where I co-authored with my former colleagues, um, was the idea that some of that governance could be exported to governments across the world um, that aren't very friendly to civil liberties or, you know, are very um, are involved in promulgating human rights abuses to continue or further those human rights abuses in the name of public safety, in the name of stability, etc. So I think keeping all those things in the back of one's mind is important to think of when thinking of how China is able to, um, or parts of China are able to sort of dominate ecosystems from information to broader issues across public security. You're listening to 101.9 High FM. I'm Benji Shulman, and we've been talking today to Bryce Barros, who is a term member of the Council for Foreign Relations, talking about China relations with uh, South Africa, with America, with the world. And uh, we're going to be continuing this discussion going forward. I am Benji Shulman, and this is 101.9 High FM. From Johannesburg to Jerusalem, the world is always changing, growing, and innovating. Join Benji Shulman for the next hour as he brings you the trendsetters, the thought leaders, and those creating news before it happens. Only on the New Blue Review, your favorite Jewish culture and current affairs show. Every Monday at 9 a.m. right here on 101.9 High FM. 101.9 High FM, talking today to Bryce Barros, who's a term member of the Council for Foreign Relations, talking China this morning and what it means for you and our country and uh, the world in general. Now, Bryce, just before we took that break, you were talking about the potential for China to influence different countries. And when you bring this up in South Africa, uh, you will get very senior academics in very considerably authoritative publications saying, well, you know, uh, this is ridiculous. The Americans and the Europeans are, are traditional imperialists. Yes, there are Chinese repressive uh, laws and things in, in, in their own country, but actually this is not a imperial power. They just want to sort of have their near abroad, their region, uh, under, under their influence, but they're not interested in dominating really the rest of, of the world. And so people need to stop sort of scaremongering. I just wonder what, what your response or what your, your experience has been with this kind of a, a viewpoint around China's foreign policy. So I would argue that you obviously can point to the ills of the West across uh, the global South, the way that things have been treated. That's not unapparent to me. I happen to be of Cape Verdean ancestry, Cape Verdean American ancestry, and I can point to many of the ills of the former Portuguese colonial empire, um, even in the ways that they've affected uh, South African foreign policy historically. And that's not faulty. I would argue, though, that with, you know, China, especially, there are much more sort of 
trying to think of a good way to, to word this. Sort of concerns that could pop up when you're doing business deals, you know, not to quote things like debt trap diplomacy or whatever, but diplomatic deals or, or financial transactions that would allow China to dominate certain parts of sectors across countries and whatnot in ways that aren't transparent, ways that could actually undermine uh, political stability or even governance. And historically, you've faced that with Western countries. That's not, you know, unapparent, um, especially for some of the listeners here. However, I would argue that there are much more sort of checks within, uh, you know, different deals that are being done by Western governments, much more laws and regulations that they need to follow. Um, that also could come with more stipulations for, for different partners, especially across the African subcontinent related to human rights or preserving, uh, preserving human rights or advancing human rights, like, you know, say voices for women or rights of women, uh, minorities, um, protecting different things that have geological concerns, et cetera. You might not have those concerns with China. And also because you don't have those concerns with China, there's more of a willingness uh, for Chinese firms to go into places that Western governments have been historically a little bit more worried of doing business, right? I think one good example of this over the recent decades, less so now, but in recent decades, uh, for South African listeners would be Angola. Um, given everything that happened from its colonial struggle independence, and then the civil war that raged on for decades. China was really one of the few places in the world that didn't really, frankly speaking, care about what happened in the civil war, as long as whomever someone, you know, won that they were favorable towards, which the current government is. Uh, but more importantly, they're willing to work in an environment that was so dangerous with the understanding that they could, you know, have a high-risk, high-reward sort of situation. And you can argue, you know, at the end of the civil war and now that, um, you know, the government there is doing whatever it's doing, uh, given the ties between like Chinese oil companies and Sonangol and, and other sort of entities in Angola, that China was able to reap somewhat of a high risk reward from something that was very high risk. Um, so I would say that that's sort of a model that they sort of follow, uh, many different ways. Um, and because some Western governments are afraid to go into places like that, places that have a lot of issues with failed states, or um, stability in general, um, China is able to sort of use that advantage, uh, use that to their advantage to get business deals that you might not get from a Western company that has more um, red tape. Um, that does not mean that there are other non-Western part, part, uh, powers that are also trying to step up their sort of like engagement with Africa. I think India is a really interesting partner to keep an eye out for, um, and Japan as well, um, and especially with Japan, you're going to have many of the similar same regulations that you would have with the United States or a France or a UK or what have you. The difference being you won't have as much of the direct impact of what was the history of Japanese imperialism uh, touching African uh, history and whatnot, right? Um, and with India, you know, the fact that it's a large democracy wants to compete um, in some ways against uh, a fellow BRICS country like China. They also might be might be more willing to turn an eye towards some human rights abuses, but would still have more democratic sort of checks and balances than you would have with investments from China as well. So turning to another region of the world, uh, in, the, in the Middle East, we recently had the Chinese brokering a deal between the Saudis and the Iranians uh, to, to end hostilities there. 
Uh, it's also the Chinese relationship has been a problem for Israel because they have, because of what you mentioned before about the restrictions from the United States on selling certain kinds of technologies to China, uh, which could be used for military purposes. In terms of the Middle East, what, what do you think China's main, main outcome is there? So I would argue, and, and you really, so I should preface, I am not a Middle East expert. Um, however, I do know quite a bit about China's engagement historically with uh, the Middle East and North Africa. And if I were to look at it from that lens, especially from the lens of the Iraq war uh, in 2003 onward, uh, where China benefited arguably the most in terms of oil contracts and other sort of things that the U.S. government at the time thought that they would benefit from, uh, you know, when the war kicked off, um, I would argue that their biggest focus is oil. Um, and that includes spot markets. So oil spot markets, um, ensuring that oil is at a reasonable price. Um, I can't specifically say what the drivers of wanting to broker that agreement between Saudi Arabia were, Saudi Arabia and Iran were. Um, I think you can make arguments and other folks who are much more knowledgeable on this topic and are actual like China, Middle East, North Africa experts have made arguments like, you know, there's a little bit of prestige there. There's a little bit of wanting to stop the United States. I would argue that looking at things strictly from an energy security perspective, a benefit, I can't say whether or not this is a, a main driver of a deal like that uh, to ensure that, you know, Saudi Arabia and Iraq can come together in certain ways is ensuring that there's a much more stability of the price of oil, especially in, you know, the wake of uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine so that the prices are, you know, doesn't fluctuate as much. It's much cheaper for China to buy. Um, and even though China right now, after the war is kicked off, has the ability to get more oil from, from Russia, given that Russia can't really sell anywhere else, especially in the West, that still directly could impact the price of the commodity globally. And ensuring that two of the biggest oil producers that aren't Russia, so Iran and Saudi Arabia, are, are on some of good, hand, uh, good terms with each other, is actually beneficial for China in the long term in terms of being able to get access to oil overall that's not at a ridiculously high commodity price, uh, which if there was more instability in the Middle East over, you know, um, Israeli slash Arab competition with Iran could potentially make the price go up higher. Um, so that's one, but that's the lens that I would look at that from. However, I'm not the person to talk to <laughs> about Chinese interests in the Middle East other than that. No, I think that that's a, a great insight and, and appreciate it. Bryce, uh, coming up to the end of uh, the discussion, uh, if people want to see your article on, on Chinese disinformation practices in sub-Saharan Africa uh, or anything else that you've written, where, where can they find it? So you can find all that information on um, my Twitter account, or I guess we're calling it X nowadays. And my Twitter handle is at B-A-R-R-O-S underscore B-R-Y-C-E. And from there on my, on my URL attached to my account, you can go to the link of all the publications I had when I was at the German Marshall Fund of the United States, which includes a link to this article right there. Um, I can also provide uh, a link to the report as well. So that Benji, if you want to share it um, with the, you know, synopsis for this episode, your listeners can go ahead and hear that or read it there. Yeah, that's fantastic. I think we can include that 
in the show notes. Very, very helpful. Bryce Barros, fantastic talking to you. He is a term member on the Council for Foreign Relations, talking to us about Chinese information, diplomacy, and other practices all over the world and what it means uh, for our, for our country. Bryce, thank you so much for joining us and uh, have a great day where you are. Thank you, Benji. I really appreciate it. And I am very thrilled to have had the opportunity to make my first media appearance with a African news outlet. So thank you. Well, there you go. First here on 101.9 High FM. I'm Benji Shulman. This is the new Blue Review.